Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Hey, Tracy, do you know how to play the harmonica? Uh, know-how would be a very generous description. <laughs> Almost anyone can get a noise out of it. It may I, or may not be melodic. I can put a harmonica in my mouth and cause it to make noise. There you go. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty much the same. That's not an area of musical skill that I have ever developed. Uh, and we're going to talk about harmonicas today and sort of how the harmonica came to be as popular as it is. And we're even going to talk about a couple of uh, sort of important harmonica musicians. Uh, for clarity... The German word harmonica spelled with a K uh, is used to apply to several different things. Harmonicas, like we're talking about today, glass harmonicas and accordions. Uh, and the glass harmonica, which Benjamin Franklin played a, a part in developing, uses a series of glass bowls arranged together in graduated sizes and uh, uses friction to produce to produce notes. And uh, that's not what we're talking about today, though. And as for the accordion, uh, the accordion harm- and the harmonica are two instruments that uh, are kind of intertwined in terms of development. They both appeared on the scene in the 1820s, and they were kind of developed in tandem throughout the 1800s. But today we are going to talk about the harmonica in the sense of what is sometimes also called a mouth harp. Uh, you know, the probably the image that most people think of when you say the word. And probably like something they had a toy version of as a kid. I love those things when I was a child. I was a danger to myself and others <laughs> <laughs> with my toy harmonicas. Some of those toys, I'm like, why did Santa put it in my stocking if everybody hates me playing it so much? But there you go. Uh, so first, we're just going to kind of talk about harmonicas and and their ancient history roots. Harmonicas are found all over the world, and they are part of the music of numerous cultures. And that's due at least in part to the fact that it is an exceptionally portable musical instrument. I mean, if, like, you have the harmonica, the kazoo, I don't know, the triangle. <laughs> yeah, like, you can sh- you can put, pop a harmonica in your pocket and off you go. And later on that portability, we're going to talk about kind of how that helped it spread. Uh, another part of the harmonica's appeal is its simplicity. Like we just said, almost anyone can make a noise on it. Uh, it creates a sound when air is passed over a metal reed that's fixed on one end but not the other, so it allows for vibration. The oldest known harmonica-like instrument is the Chinese sheng, and one of these was found in the tomb of a 5th century BCE emperor of China. The oldest known writing about these instruments goes all the way back to 1100 BCE. So these have been around for a really long time. Yeah, we um, uh, definitely know that they were popular for quite a while in China. And the sheng, really, if you look at it, it doesn't look that much like a harmonica. It more closely sort of resembles a, a mini handheld pipe organ in terms of form. But when you hear one played, the audible resemblance between a sheng and a harmonica is unmistakable. And we're going to link to a video in our show notes of someone playing a sheng so you can kind of hear it for yourself. Free reed instruments similar to the sheng spread all through Southeast Asia and then to Korea and Japan prior to the 18th century. Harmonicas appeared in Europe in the 1700s, but it's not totally clear whether this was descended from the Chinese sheng, which was then, you know, brought to Europe by a trade and travel, or whether they were developed in Europe on their own independently. Yeah, you'll sometimes see it 
described one way or the other, depending on what history you're reading. Some will say, yes, and then Asian instruments like the harmonica traveled into Europe and Europeans were inspired to create their own versions. And others kind of say, mm, we're not entirely clear that that's how it worked. They may have been working on similar instruments concurrently before they were exposed to things like the shung. But what we do know is that in 1820, uh, Christian Friedrich Ludwig Buschmann bundled a group of pitch pipes together into kind of a, a squarish, rectangular shape, creating an instrument that he called an aura. And this instrument could only be played by blowing, so similar to a harmonica, but with no option to draw air through the instruments to create tones with an inhale. Scandinavia and Central Europe gave us the first instruments that look like what we think of as a harmonica today. Mund harmonicas, or mouth organs, appeared in Vienna and Berlin in the 1820s. And these usually had one reed per hole in the instrument, whereas later models would significantly expand the number of notes that could be played using additional reeds. Yeah, the first uh, two-reed harmonica appeared in 1825. And so with this design, one reed plays a note when the player exhales or blows in, into the instrument, and another reed uh, that plays a different note sometimes, we'll talk about this more in detail in a moment, uh, when the player inhales or draws through the instrument. And this new design of uh, a blowing versus a, an inhaling and having both options was the brainchild of a man named Joseph Richter. And there's still today a, a thing called Richter tuning, which is named after him based on some of these ideas. Uh, and since we're kind of getting into sort of how these work in terms of blowing and drawing, we're going to step away from the history uh, chronology for just a moment and talk about the actual physical makeup of a harmonica. But before we dive into that, let's have a quick word from a sponsor. So uh, now that we've reached the point in history where their harmonica is actually a harmonica, as we would recognize it, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about how they're constructed and how they actually work. Harmonicas are free reed instruments, and that means that the reed is fixed at one end and it's set over an opening that's barely larger than the reed. Yeah, if you take apart a harmonica, you're going to see a pretty simple assortment of pieces. They're the top and bottom cover plates, which provide the exterior housing for the whole thing. Uh, the comb is the thick centerpiece of the instrument, and it contains the holes that a player blows into or draws through. And combs were made of wood originally, but now they're sometimes made of plastic or metal. The reed plates sit on either side of the comb in between the comb and the cover plates. The reeds are affixed to these reed plates, and the length of the reeds vary. That's what creates the different notes. There are also screws holding the whole business together. Reed plates on most harmonicas are made out of metal. They can also be made of plastic, but that usually relegates the instrument into the realm of toys. Yeah, those are the ones that I was making adults crazy with when I was a child, slash teenager, slash young adult. Uh, <laughs> there are four common types of harmonica, the diatonic, the chromatic, the tremolo, and the octave. So diatonic harmonicas contain 10 holes. The four middle holes make up an octave, and then the holes on either side of that center group extend the scale these are the harmonicas that you'd normally hear in country or blues music. Joseph Richter's 1825 instrument was a diatonic harmonica. 
Uh, chromatics, which are favored often for classical and jazz music, have more options for the number of holes that can be in the comb. They can come in 10, 12, or 16-hole varieties, and they can play all 12 notes on the chromatic scale. Both tremolo and octave harmonicas have double holes. In tremolo models, which are commonly used in Latin, Asian, international folk, and gospel music, each double hole has two reeds tuned to the same note, but one is slightly higher to create a uh, a vibrating effect. Octave harmonicas, which are often favored for Irish or Cajun music, have two reeds in each double hole, like the tremolo, but the reeds are tuned an octave apart. The harmonica is deceptively simple. Almost anyone who blows into one can make a noise out of it. But there are true masters of the instrument who spend years perfecting their embouchure and technique. Yeah, I mean, the way that people form their mouth muscles to make noises is, uh, it varies and you can get different tones from different ways that you shape your mouth and different players have kind of signature sounds that they create because their embouchure is, is so specific to the way they play. It's really quite fascinating, but. Uh, now that we kind of understand how it all works, we're going to get back into the history of it. And we left off in the chronology with Joseph Richter having developed the two-read system for harmonicas. And despite this huge jump in harmonica technology, and harmonicas uh, to this day retain Richter's design, uh, there was actually some difficulty, though, getting any serious attention for this mouth organ. Um Established musicians at the time were a little snooty. They kind of viewed it as a plaything. And the fact that it was available to anyone because of its simplicity and relatively low price point compared to other musical instruments really did not help in this regard. I feel like that probably pertains to like the 47 other extremely easy to carry musical instruments that I've thought of since we recorded the intro. (laughs) I feel like folks are going to email us lots of other easy to carry instruments. Uh, Sounds great. Sure. Eventually, businessmen saw the appeal of offering musicality to the masses, and harmonicas were manufactured for retail sale. One of the businessmen who did this was Christian Messner of Trossingen. And when Messner founded his harmonica company in 1827, he was a very secretive and extremely protective of how these small instruments were made, so much so that only members of his family were even allowed information about his factory and how it worked. Unfortunately, his family members were not quite as careful with the secret as he was. Messner's business did really well for years, but in the 1850s, his nephew, Christian Weiss, joined the company. After working with his uncle for a year, Weiss started his own factory. A former school friend of Weiss's, Matthias Honer, stopped by the new factory in 1856 to visit, but it was not just a social call. By the time Weiss realized that Honer was carefully observing and taking in the family's trade secrets, it was too late to do anything about it. Yep, Matthias Honer opened up his own harmonica factory the next year, 1857, using, uh, to some degree, the knowledge that he gleaned on his visit to Weiss and Weiss's factory uh, to make his product. And Honer, like both Messner and Weiss, had been a clockmaker prior to this venture, and he apparently was not particularly musically inclined. But what he really did have on his side was that he was a better businessman than Messner and Weiss. He figured out not only how to make harmonicas, but how to mass produce harmonicas. And this was a huge departure from the normal musical instrument manufacture process, uh, as, you know, is still in many ways the case. It's a trade that was always focused on handcrafted work. 
Because he had this large output of harmonicas, that also meant that he could sell them in bulk. But volume sales weren't the only way he was outpacing the other entrepreneurs. He recognized the United States had a large community of German immigrants who might want to carry a little piece of home with them in their new country. Harmonicas would fit right into their pockets. So in 1862, this former clockmaker sent a shipment of his harmonica products to members of his family who had already emigrated to the U.S. And his belief was that if these cousins of his could just promote the harmonica to other immigrants, demand would naturally grow. And Honer was right. And his uh, U.S. market quickly became his biggest market. Once harmonicas had traveled to the United States, they soon spread all through the country. As harmonicas made their way into the American South and Southwest, the sound really became an integral part of folk music. New playing techniques also developed along the way. Blues musicians started cupping their hands around their harmonicas to, to experiment with sort of slurring the notes. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, musical development in this time and, and technique development around the harmonica uh, that we're not going super deep into, but it's really interesting. And it, it's kind of one of those things where this instrument was designed to be played one way, but when it got to the U.S., particularly uh, in the South and in, you know, as you said, a lot of blues culture, they really just sort of found their own ways to play it. It was like they did not have this European music tradition, so they just kind of approached it as a completely new thing. Uh, and in the meantime, Honer really continued to do extremely well for himself. 20 years into his business venture as a harmonica manufacturer, he had basically reached mogul status. So at that point, he was churning out a million harmonicas each year. In 1896, Honer introduced the Marine Band Harmonica, and this model has been popular ever since with musicians and collectors. The diatonic Marine Band model had brass reeds and a pearwood comb and had has been played by everyone from Bob Dylan to blues legend Big Mama Thornton. Yeah, it, it remains one of the most popular models of all time. Uh, in 1910, the Honer Company innovated again by introducing the chromatic harmonica, which we talked about a little bit when we were discussing different types. After 40 years in business as a harmonica maker, Honer bought out Messner's company. Uh, much as Messner ran his business as a family affair, Honer built his empire along with his sons and eventually handed the company off to them. Uh, Trossingen, Germany became known as a harmonica city. Uh, and next up, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a couple of the musicians who made names for themselves playing harmonica. There have been many, but we're only going to cover a couple. Uh, but first, we're going to pause once again for a word from a sponsor. So that sponsor is Squarespace. It is a super, super easy to use drag and drop way to make websites. You don't need to learn to code. And if you are like me, and sometimes you cannot make the thing do. They also have 24-7 customer support. It includes both email and live chat who are there 24 hours a day, seven days a week to help you make a beautiful, clean website so that your content becomes the focus of what you are doing. Uh, there's also an easy logo creator. If you are working on some kind of a personal project or small business that needs that, you can get a quality logo for your website or your company, and that is free for Squarespace uh, customers. Also, the design is responsive. That means that when people look at your website on their various mobile devices, they're going to see something that actually looks good and not something that they have to pinch and squeeze and scroll around to try to make it fit on their phone screen. So try this risk-free. You can go to www.squarespace.com history 
and get a free 14-day trial with no credit card necessary. I'm going to say that one more time because that's a sticking point with folks sometimes. There is no credit card necessary. If you like this product, it costs as low as $8 a month and includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. If you use the offer code HISTORY, you can also get 10% off your first purchase. So that is squarespace.com slash history. So, as we promised, we would discuss harmonica players here for a moment. And as the harmonica became integrated into the developing blues and country scene that was starting to really grow in the United States, skilled players began to emerge as famous musicians. Uh, one of the first of these famous harmonica masters was DeFord Bailey. Bailey had been playing harmonica since the age of three. His parents were musical, and he allegedly was given instruments instead of toys when he was a child. A Nashville radio show called Barn Dance started featuring him and his incredible talent in 1925. Bailey became a regular performer when this show called Barn Dance changed its name to something you're probably going to recognize, which is the Grand Ole Opry in 1927. And he appeared on that show for 15 years and was actually one of its best paid stars. He was the first African-American country star, and in many ways he served as a bridge between the rural folk tradition, which he had grown up in, and popular music, which he sort of became a huge uh, icon in. Bailey's music career continued until 1941, when the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, or ASCAP, and the radio industry started a dispute over licensing fees for performing on the air because there was no licensing contract in place while the dispute was underway, DeFord Bailey couldn't play many of the songs that had come to be favorites of the Opry audience. Yeah, this really was a very volatile time. Uh, you know, it was basically like he wanted to play music. He wanted to play for his his audience and his fans. And they were like, you can't do that. Like, the, the risks are too great. You cannot possibly do this. And it was really frustrating. And as this quarrel kind of lumbered on... The radio station, you know, ended up in some pretty dire fiscal states and they had to let people go. And Bailey was one of those people. So at that point in 1941, he left his music career behind more or less entirely and he opened a shoeshine parlor. Although he would occasionally return to the radio show after all of the legal battles had died down for guest appearances. DeFord Bailey died in July 1982 and he was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2005. And the next person that we're going to talk about is really colorful and interesting uh, and has a very hazy biography because we'll talk about why. Uh, at the same time that DeFord Bailey was enjoying his popularity with the Opry, there was another blues harmonica player who was also gaining recognition. And this was Sonny Boy Williamson II, who was born, we believe, Alec Miller. And he made his name on a radio show called King Biscuit Time. And Sonny Boy is really interesting, uh, though historically frustrating, because it appears that he really delighted in planting false information about himself in the press. He went by numerous names. In addition to Sonny Boy, he was also sometimes called Rice, Reverend, Reverend Blue, Willie Miller, and Willie Williamson. To make matters even more confusing, there was another Sonny Boy Williamson who played blues harmonica at the same time and who was around at the same age, based mainly out of Chicago. The two eventually came to be known as Sonny Boy Williamson 1 and Sonny Boy Williamson 2. For the purpose of today's episode, when we reference Sonny Boy, we're talking about number two. Yeah, they're, I mean, their stories run so parallel in terms of timeline. I think Sonny Boy Williamson 
one or the first, however you want to say it, was born in 1913. And we think that Sonny Boy Williamson, too, was born in 1912, although there are some question marks there as well. We don't know that that's an accurate date. So it's <laughs> very um tricky to kind of sort out the details sometimes. And even while doing research, I would stumble across sites that seemed to be really squared away. And then I would realize, oh, they've accidentally possibly conflated these two men together or their details have crossed this, the wires and they're not quite accurate. But so Sonny Boy that we're talking about today, too, claimed to have appeared on the Grand Ole Opry radio show in the 1930s. But that has never been verified. But once he started playing harmonica on King Biscuit Time as Sonny Boy Williamson, he kind of became too famous to make another name change. Although I suppose he could have played uh, anonymously somewhere under another name, but Sonny Boy was really his his recognized name. Uh, and the show's sponsor was so delighted with him and his popularity that they even marketed a cornmeal named after him. So it was this Sonny Boy cornmeal, and it had a photo of him on the bag. Uh, and his career spanned quite a while, and he was very successful. He started a recording career in the 1950s and did really well for himself. Sonny Boy died in 1965 and was inducted into the Arkansas Entertainers Hall of Fame in 2008. In 2014, he was given a marker on the Mississippi Blues Trail. And while those are only two harmonicists that have gained fame, there are certainly scores of others in all genres from classical to hip hop. It's an instrument that, uh, you know, as we said, it's deceptively simple. People go, oh, a harmonica. But the people that play it well, it's amazing. In December 1965, astronaut Willie Shira became the first human being to play a song in space. And he did so on a harmonica. He played Jingle Bells as part of a Christmas joke that he and a fellow astronaut, Tom Stafford, played with Mission Control. The two of them reported seeing a UFO piloted by a man in a red suit. <laughs> yeah, they were having a little bit of fun. Uh, the Honer tradition in Trossingen continues into present day. Uh, this company has produced more than a billion harmonicas since its beginning in 1857. It is still going strong. Uh, during the 1960s, Honer Harmonica was really smart and signed endorsement deals with some of the biggest names in music, including the Beatles, Johnny Cash, and Sammy Davis Jr. Trossingen is also home to the Harmonica Museum, which is funded in a joint partnership by the German government and the Honer Company. It's home to almost 25,000 different harmonicas from around the world. Yeah, so you can visit it if you are ever there. Uh, the harmonica, of course, retains its popularity in part because it can be so expressive and can sound so different depending on the person playing it, as we talked about. Uh, and I read this great interview uh, that took place in 2013, and Smithsonian writer Paul Biseglio interviewed Barry Lee Pearson about an album called Classic Harmonica Blues that Pearson was co-producing for Smithsonian Folkways Recordings. And in this interview, Biseglio asked Pearson what he hoped listeners would take away from the recording. And his response was, I hope people might want to think more about the harmonica and maybe try it out. I also would like them to understand that you can play it in a variety of ways. You can bend an instrument to your cultural preference. If you put your mind to it, you can make an instrument talk for you in the language that you prefer in your own cultural idiom. I just love that way of putting it. So... That's our brief history of harmonicas. It's one of those things that there are so many branches that we could talk about, but I kind of wanted to give a nice brief overview since it's a uh, an instrument that maybe doesn't always get the respect it deserves, but people that love harmonica love harmonica. 
And it's because it's kind of awesome. I like to watch when the somebody plays the harmonica and the guitar at the same time. Oh, yeah, that always kind of blows my mind. Like, I can't, I feel like my brain can't parse that file. Like, I'm like, how are, how does it do? But people are talented and can do many things at once. <laughs> I'm just not one of them. Uh, I also have a little bit of listener mail that has nothing to do with harmonicas. Uh, I've been wanting to showcase more of our awesome um, postcards that we get, because we get a lot of them. And sometimes I don't always stop and, and read them for the show. So I've been trying to do more of those lately, more of our actual hard copy mail, since we often read a lot of emails. So the first one is from our listener, Will. And he writes, Hi, Holly and Tracy. My name is Will, and I love your podcast. I picked up on it this past summer and took it with me to Evian, France, where I completed a five-month study abroad with AFS USA. Listening to your program has led me to do my own digging and learn more about where I was living as well as my hometown. I'm off to college this June at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy in Kings Point, New York, and I hope I can make it to your live show this fall. Again, I love the show and for teaching me so much about history both here and around the world. Will, thanks so much. We hope you make it here to our show in October as well. That would be awesome. And he sent us this beautiful postcard of Evian Le Bain. Uh, which is a beautiful part of France, and it's a gorgeous postcard. And our second one is from our listener, Teresa. And this one is near and dear to my heart because the postcard is from Disney World. <laughs> she says, Hi, Ollie and Tracy. First, I love the podcast and the knowledge you so pleasantly bestow upon us listeners. I listen on my way to work and pretty much whenever possible. I'm sad to say I'm nearing the end of the archive. I picked this card up at the Polynesian Resort at Disney World on my last vacation. Well, staycation, really. Uh, and your episode on the Haunted Mansion made my trip even more interesting. I love the parks as it is and go whenever possible. I hope you ladies enjoy the card and keep up the great work. Thanks for keeping the podcast interesting and enlightening. And it's um, what's interesting about this postcard for me is that uh, it is a picture of the newly redone Great Ceremonial House at the Polynesian. So for any of our listeners that know Disney World, and for listeners that don't, the Polynesian was one of the three original uh, resort hotels at Disney World. And it recently, in the last year and a half, underwent this huge remodel. Some people love it. Some people do not. But this is uh, one of the first postcards I've seen of the actual new version of it. So it's kind of cool. They took away the big fountain that was in the middle, which I do kind of miss. And now it's kind of a little bit more of an open, airy, kind of more modern space. But anyway, thank you, Teresa. I love it. I love all of our postcards. If you would like to send us an email, you can do so. That's at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also connect with us at facebook.com slash mistinhistory, on Twitter at mistinhistory, on pinterest.com slash mistinhistory, and at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. If you would like some Stuff You Missed in History class goodies, you can purchase those at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. And if you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, if you go to the House of Works website and you type in the word harmonica, one of the articles you will get is on notable Grand Ole Opry performers, and one of those mentioned in the article is DeFord Bailey. You can also visit us at mistinhistory.com. That is our home on the web where we have an archive of all of our episodes, show notes from all the episodes Tracy and I have worked on, the occasional other odds, ends, and goodies, some fun images to look at, uh, and we encourage you to visit HowStuffWorks.com, our parent site, and MissedHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs> <laughs>